right, you're there in the book of Jude. We're going to start in the beginning of the chapter. Uh, we already had the whole thing read to us, but I want you to focus on, uh, start reading in verse number three, where it says, Behold, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Tonight, I want to talk about the subject of grace, but specifically the misunderstanding of grace that many Christians have today and that many of them teach. And there's a lot more to grace than just the fact that basically we're saved by grace. There's no salvation, like our salvation's not of works. There's more to grace than that. And grace comes with responsibility. The Bible is filled with all kinds of things that we should do after we're saved. And a lot of people want to pretend like none of that's in the Bible. And they want to pretend like uh, the only thing that we need to be concerned about is basically just being saved and the way that we live doesn't matter, the sins that we commit don't matter, and that is just false doctrine. I believe that's what the Bible's talking about when it says turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And when you keep on reading here in verse number 5, we have examples of people who God did something for, and then they basically spit back in the face of God, and afterwards they were destroyed. In verse number 5, We have, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. Verse number six, and the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. And then verse number seven is, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Then you have likewise also these filthy dreamers, defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. So we've got these few groups here. We have Israel after they're rescued from Egypt. God does this great work for them. And as they're wandering through the wilderness, they're saying all kinds of things. They don't truly believe God, and they were left in the wilderness, and they died there because of it. Then you have the angels. My opinion of this verse is this is talking about when Satan falls from heaven. I believe he had angels with him. Other people debate about what that means. I don't really think that the exact thing is important what it is. It's important that they were afterwards destroyed for their rebellion against God and leaving what he had for them originally. And then we all are familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah and the wickedness of that city and that it was destroyed. And the thing is, when you're reading through the Old Testament, especially uh, when you're starting to see the nation of Israel and the people of God get formed, you have Abraham and his camp, which is basically the beginning, the roots of the nation of Israel. But Sodom and Gomorrah, though it wasn't part of that, it's important to remember that literally everything on the earth is God's. Okay, So when you'll look at different areas of the world that maybe are barren of the gospel or barren of the word of God, it doesn't mean that they have an excuse and are able to just be as wicked as a place like Sodom and Gomorrah was. Though those weren't the people of God, God still had every right to judge them and destroy them because the law of God is written on our hearts. We, should, we know right from wrong. People are born with morals. They're born with a conscience. And when you have a whole city that seems like they're just depraved of a conscience, God was perfectly just in destroying that city and doing it with fire as an example for all of us today to see that. Now, when it comes to grace, a lot of people act like grace in the name of eternal security. They really poorly represent it and act like it is just a permission slip to sin. And that's what the other side's accusing you of all the time, right? The people that are against eternal security are constantly saying that, well, that's just a permission slip to sin, a license to sin, and the different arguments people will come up with by it. But then you have Christians who believe in eternal security that literally live that way. You know, obviously we can sit here and, you know, we're a church that preaches against sin. We're a church that stands strong and believes the whole Bible and everything. But there are plenty of Christians out there today who claim eternal security, 
don't pay attention to sins in their life. Just don't really care. Just go about and go through life like any other person in the world and make no effort to look at the law of God, look at how God feels about things. And I want to go to a couple different passages in the New Testament that people will use to try to justify this. So first, I want you to go to Galatians chapter number 3. Galatians chapter number 3, where we get the phrase about the law being our schoolmaster. Go to uh, verse number 19. We'll start reading there in Galatians chapter 3. It says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So people will use this passage to basically teach that the only purpose of the law today, basically the only purpose of the Old Testament, the only purpose of the books of Moses is to get the point across to us that we've all sinned, that we're guilty and worthy of hell, and that basically after we come to the knowledge of that, we're done with it, and that there's no use for it. And they'll say that that's what it's saying in verse number 25, where it says, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now, Obviously, it is one purpose of the law to have us look at it, and any normal person can look at the law and say, yes, I've broken one or multiple or mostly all of these commandments in some cases. And that is something that we're supposed to then run to Christ and receive Christ for salvation. It should be uh, bringing faith into our hearts and believing on Jesus Christ when we look at those things. But that isn't the only purpose of the law. The law is still good. In Romans chapter number 3 and verse 31 says, Do we then make void the law through faith? God forbid, yea, we establish the law. The Bible all throughout the New Testament is filled in basically every single epistle giving exhortations to not sin and to avoid sin against sin, whether it be fornication, whether it be adultery, whether it be any of the works of the flesh that we'll look at later on tonight. And so it's not reasonable to say that the only purpose of the law is just to be a schoolmaster to us. That's one of the things that it does. But when it talks about how we're no longer under a schoolmaster anymore, that basically means that we're no longer under the law in regards to salvation. Okay? There's two kinds of different people in this world. There are those that are under the law, and there are those that are under the blood of Jesus Christ. Okay? If you're saved, you're under the blood of Jesus Christ. You'll never be judged when it comes to salvation by the law. People who are not under the blood of Jesus Christ, that don't believe on Christ, that haven't trusted in him for salvation, one day at the great white throne judgment will be judged according to the law. And every single one of them will be cast into the lake of fire because no person can be righteous held up next to God's law. So this is an important thing to understand. This is supposed to be a relieving thing to you that you're no longer under the law. You no longer have to worry about being perfect and being righteous in terms of the law, that doesn't mean, though, that basically the law doesn't matter anymore and that we can go on and live a wicked life. We can go on and live in sin because we're not under the law anymore. Yes, your sins are under the blood of Jesus, but when we use these hypothetical examples out soul winning where, you know, you'll talk to people about what if you never went to church? What if you lived a wicked life? What if you go get drunk? What if you, you know, commit adultery? And then there's the crazy people. Or what if you killed 100 people? Would you still be saved? Don't ever use that example out soul winning. You know, but, you know, they use all these examples, and they're all true, okay? I believe in eternal security. This, we all believe in eternal security, that regardless of our sins, it's about what Jesus did for us. That doesn't mean, though, that we're advocating go commit sins. Don't care about anything that the Bible teaches don't worry about all those things. No, we should be worried about those things. Why? 
because of the Bible, because of the law that we have and all the exhortations all throughout the New Testament to follow in these things and continue in these things. Go to John chapter number 8. John chapter number 8. Her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery, the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him cast a first stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? No man hath condemned thee. She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. So people will use this passage to basically say that Jesus was spitting in the face of the law of Moses, that uh, adultery is not a big deal, or not necessarily that adultery is not a big deal, but it doesn't carry a heavy penalty it's not uh, as much of a problem as they viewed it back in the Old Testament when we're under the law. And basically when people are teaching this stuff, they're saying that the law is bad. Okay? At the root of all of this, it's people that are apologizing for the Bible, that they see things in the law that they don't like. We should love every word of God, including the ones in the law, including the ones in the New Testament. If you're going to hold to the promise that Jesus died on a cross for you, was buried and rose again three days later to rescue you from the law, you better believe that that entire law was good and that you were the one in the wrong, okay? You can't just act like the law was bad and that there was something bad about the law. Now, this passage, what's always left out, it's like anybody when they're reading this passage, they don't have verse number six in their Bible, okay? Verse number six says, this they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him, okay? The whole reason that they're even bringing this question up in the first place is because Jesus has no authority on the earth at that time to put that woman to death, okay? And so if he cites that she should be put to death, then basically he's going against the government that they're under today. If he says that she shouldn't be put to death, then he's going against the law of Moses, so that's why there's just no response. And eventually he comes up with the response that he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And I've heard pastors, not just like your you know, non-denominational type, independent fundamental Baptist pastors take this passage and teach that basically this is Jesus doing away with the death penalty. And that Jesus came into the earth and completely did away with the death penalty. Okay, well, tell that to basically everybody in the history since Jesus Christ up until about 100 years ago. Because when they founded the colonies, they were putting the laws of the book of Leviticus in their laws and citing them for the death penalty, all right? This is a new teaching that people are coming up with. And honestly, it's for no other purpose than just apologizing what the Bible says. Now, in this scenario, Jesus didn't have the authority on the earth through the government for this woman to be put to death. So you know what he did? He showed grace. And the important thing to realize is that we're able to show grace, and we live in a society today that doesn't punish practically anybody for their crimes, and so we have the ability to just show grace to those people anyways. You know, That doesn't mean that you're spitting in the face of the law, and that doesn't mean that you're neglecting it, but, you know, I mean, honestly, today people will commit murder and won't even go to prison half the time. I mean, all the time out in Chicago, I just like looking at the news articles and reading about all the shootings that happen every weekend. And you know what? They usually go right along with that. Zero arrests. You know, there's just, they don't track them down. They leave them be. They do their own thing. And they're taking the whole city over down there. It's not just the bad neighborhoods anymore. The whole entire thing's a bad neighborhood now. You know, but so you've got all these different problems that are going on. And it's because people are, you know, we, we as a country are really wicked. We're continuing to make sin not that big of a deal, and it doesn't get punished anymore. So what's our response to that? Jesus just gave them grace. And Jesus specifically gave this woman grace, and it's a good story. You know, it's, it's refreshing to hear 
because all of us have been guilty of horrible, horrible sins in the past. And to you, it might not seem that horrible, but in the eyes of God, when you compare the righteousness and the holiness of God to ourselves and our wickedness, where the Bible says that our, rags, that our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to him, it's an amazing feeling to have that grace given to us. So basically, when you think about this woman specifically, our level of wickedness compared to God's righteousness, and then you compare this woman's level of wickedness to our level of righteousness, very far difference between those two things. And so if Jesus Christ was willing to show her grace, we should be willing to show grace to people in the same exact way. That doesn't mean, though, just because he showed her grace in this instant doesn't mean that the law, all of a sudden, now that Jesus came onto this earth, is just completely done away with. Because here's an example from the Old Testament. Why wasn't David put to death when he committed adultery? They were still under the law then. That, that was years before Jesus came, but he wasn't put to death. And, you know, I don't have an answer for that. I think it was just the mercy of God. And I think that God knew the heart of David, and for whatever reason, he decided not to put him to death. I don't know. Ask God when you get to heaven. But they were still very much under the law when that happened. That was in the day of the law, and they weren't put to death. He was shown grace anyways. That wasn't God contradicting his law. God can't contradict his law. Just like Jesus was saying when it came to the Sabbath, he's not capable of contradicting it. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Lord of the law. Anything in his word and he has the ability to show grace and mercy. If it were just up to the law, every single one of us would go to hell too. So we should be thankful for grace and thankful for mercy. But in the process of being thankful for grace, don't throw the law in the trash can and act like it doesn't matter. Just because we've been able to escape the punishment of hell doesn't mean that the rest of the law doesn't matter anymore just because we're saved and someday we'll be physically resurrected. Now, back to the book of Galatians in chapter number 5. Another doctrine that really just gets taken off the rails today is the doctrine of Christian liberty. And I want to spend some good time on this because I feel like a lot of people understand this to an extent, but I want to just try to give you some different illustrations and put this into perspective to really understand it and see what people are doing with this kind of a teaching. So Galatians chapter number 5 in verse 13 it says, For brethren, you've been called unto liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Liberty is rest and freedom from worrying about perfectly keeping the law for salvation. Liberty is not a free pass to commit sins whenever you want, with no consequences following. Hebrews chapter number 12 and verse 8 says, But if ye be without chastisements, whereof all are partakers, then ye are bastards, then are ye bastards and not sons. God the Father is a good father. A good father chastens disobedient children. A bad father doesn't. So if you can continue living in wickedness and disobedience and everything, and you never receive any chastisements, the Bible just kind of says you're probably not a son, you know? And so that's something to think about uh, when it comes to this. We are free from hell. We're not going to be judged by the law in terms of our salvation, but it doesn't mean that when we commit sins on this earth, we're not free from the consequences. Just another reason why we should focus on that today. Now, I want to use the example of my work. I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this. I had one illustration in my head because I've had the sermon I had for a while, but uh, for the unlikely scenario that this individual will watch the sermon, I don't want to use it. It's someone I know in my personal life that none of you know. But what if they tuned in and saw me talking about their disaster that they had going on? But So we're not going to do that. But uh, where I work at the Walmart Distribution Center, the schedule for my shift is 3.30 in the morning to 1.30 in the afternoon. Now, 3.30 in the morning is the start time. The out time, though is not ever set in stone. The out time is whenever we finish the work, okay? So usually they try to have a set amount of work that basically everybody shows up, we'll get out a little bit before 1.30. They just kind of plan in that there's going to be people that call off or that don't show up or that show up and don't really work hard. And so we usually, if everybody shows up, 
we pull an average of around 115% in our production as a team, we'll get out around 1 o'clock or 1.30, something like that. Now, if everybody shows up, but they decide they're not going to work very hard and pull an 80% production, we're not going to get out at 1.30, and people are going to have to stay a lot later. We'll face consequences for our actions. If half of the shift calls off, it's going to be a really late day. But the work is still going to get done. It's just going to be a lot harder for those people because other people were let down in that scenario. So the thing is, that, and that happens in the winter, you know, because not everybody lives right around here. And when we get six, eight inches of snow come through, all the people that live more than, you know, 20, 30 minutes away usually call off. And there will literally be days where people are working like, 14, 15 hours just because there's so many call-offs and there's only so much the distribution center can handle. I mean, there, there are mornings, this hasn't happened in a really long time, but there have been mornings where we all sit there, we all clock in and we get in the startup meeting and you just feel just fear come over you because you see this is a lot smaller than usual and you know it's going to be a really late day. And, you know, you might not think a 13, 14-hour shift sounds that bad. We'll do it in negative 10 degrees. It gets old after a while, you know. So that's just something that uh, I want to point out. So no matter what, the work is going to get done. There is a set amount of cases that are supposed to be shipped out. Sometimes they might get done faster than usual. Sometimes they might get done a lot slower than usual. No matter what, the work is going to get done now. It depends on how fast the get job gets done and how well the job gets done based on who decides to participate that day. And the people who are not coming in, they're calling off on their scheduled shifts, are being selfish, taking things from themselves, and then other people have to cover for them and pick up their slack and their consequences. Christian liberty basically works the exact same way, and in two different ways. In one way that basically... If we're saved, the sins that we commit, we shouldn't do those things, but Jesus is going to cover them anyways. And so he, you know, that, that's something that you should just think about too. When you think about the sin in your life, this is something that's helped me, is just to think about the fact that Jesus has to suffer. You know, and it's not like he suffers over and over and over again for every sin that you committed. But, you know, when you see somebody suffering as a result of something that you've done, it should bother you. You know, if you, I don't know, hit somebody with your car driving down the road and they're laying on the ground in a bunch of pain, you should feel bad that you hit them with your car. And for the rest of your life, you should be more careful driving so that you don't do that to somebody else again. You know, when you think about the weight that Jesus bore on his shoulders, when you read about in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was under so much pressure that he's sweating drops of blood, you know, it should make you feel bad. You know, it's, it's our fault that that even had to happen. You know, if we had been more righteous as a people, Jesus never would have had to die such a gruesome death. So when you're, you know, working on getting over sin, you're working on uh, just a specific sin and trying to get it out of your life, think about the horrible death that Jesus died on behalf of you covering that sin. And, you know, it's just, it'd be nicer if you can just think about it in your head that, you know, Jesus isn't going to have to pay for this one today because I'm not going to commit it. I'm not saying that, you know, it's like a faith plus work salvation all of a sudden, but it's just, think about it in the sense that you don't want to be as much of a part of that suffering and sacrifice that he had to do so you can just not sin as often, if that makes sense, if you understand what I'm saying. But the other way that it works is that we as a group of people, not just as a church, but as Christianity as a whole, we are not able to mess up this covenant. All throughout the Old Testament, you had multiple different covenants that were made, but you have the old covenant ultimately that's established, that's there, and it's under the law, and those people failed multiple times. You've got the Babylonian captivity, you get them uh, taken over by Egypt, and all these different things where it's just mistake after mistake after mistake after mistake, where ultimately they fail, they fall flat on their face so hard that Jesus himself came down to this earth, bore all the sins of the whole entire world, past, present, and future, and gives us the new covenant or the new testament that we're under today. 
There is nothing that any person in this world is capable of doing at making Christianity cease, making the Bible cease. We've been going for 2,000 years now. We dealt with the intense persecution of the Roman Catholic Church, dealt with all these different wars. I mean, all the people, when you just read about the history of just getting our Bible translated into English for us to read, how many people died over that, how hard that was fought, and yet here we have it today. We're meeting in a completely different country than where that was happening at. We have our Bible. We're a church. We're openly here today. There was nothing that anybody could do in terms of persecution that would stop the church. There's nothing that any of us can do that would stop the work of Christianity or stop the work of the church. Jesus said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. Now, here's the thing. What if, hypothetically, every single person in this room, we all just decided this is the last church service we're ever going to attend, we're all just going to go live like the world, and never come to church again, never do anything for God again. This local church would cease to exist. But Christianity as a whole, does that mean that just every single other church in the world is going to cease to exist? No. It would have an impact on this local area, but it wouldn't have an impact on the whole entire world. And probably someday again, another church will come to this area, and they would just get the job done that we started. Okay. Now, take it back to the Walmart example. What if tomorrow every single person in the Sterling Walmart decided they quit? All the way from the general manager of the store down to every single entry-level employee, cashiers, you know, two of them, you know, the people that stock the grocery shelves or that uh, make the pickup orders or whatever. Every single one of them just decided we quit. Does that mean that Walmart as a company doesn't exist anymore? No. If that happened, you know what would happen? They would just find new people to work at the Walmart. More people like that. And obviously, it would get to the point when it comes to Walmart that that company could cease to exist someday. And honestly, if the world goes on much longer and as business models change and everything, companies die out over time. So it's likely that someday Walmart might die out. But at this present time, if all the employees at the Sterling Walmart just decided we're not going to work anymore, that doesn't mean that down in Bentonville, Arkansas, they're just going to throw their hands up and say, well, it's time to shut the whole company down. No, they'll just find new people to do it. And if every single one of us decide tomorrow that we're going to quit, we're not going to continue serving the Lord anymore, then there's just going to be new laborers brought into the harvest. And we just won't be able to participate in that anymore. We'll be cut off from the vine. That doesn't mean that we're going to be uh, losing our salvation. That doesn't mean that we're not going to go to heaven. That doesn't mean that our sins aren't covered anymore. But it means that we're not going to be carrying out the work of the Lord, which is a privilege to be able to work in. And this is a mistake that a lot of people have made historically and basically thinking that they're a lot bigger of a deal than they actually are. It's not that God is honored and privileged to have all of us meeting here tonight and have us go out soul winning and preach the gospel and all these other things. We are privileged to have the opportunity to be a part of the work of the Lord. And if we allow ourselves to get puffed up with pride and think that we're bigger and that God is just blessed to be able to have somebody like me participate in the cause of Christ, that's a ridiculous attitude. But people have had that over the years. And especially as churches get bigger and bigger and bigger and they feel like they have you know, just so much more significant part of the cause of Christ, maybe they do. So they shouldn't get lifted up with pride and make themselves useless for the cause of Christ. We need to understand our position and not allow ourselves to get puffed up with pride and infected to where we think that we're bigger than we actually are and we start letting ourselves uh, completely lose the true perspective of it all. God is the one that builds the church. God is the one that gave us the opportunity for salvation. He's the one that gave us the opportunity to serve in the church. This is not something that should be taken lightly. The last thing we should do is get the attitude that basically without us, nothing's going to happen. If every one of us decided we're going to stop serving the Lord, this community would suffer for a time. But that doesn't mean that somebody else wouldn't come through at some other point and just pick up where we left off and preach the gospel to other people. This has been going on for thousands of years. You know, uh, When we were at that church planners conference uh, a couple months ago, there was a guy that handed out, you know, this 
line of churches all the way from basically John the Baptist to him. And you know what? I don't know whether that thing was accurate or not. But, you know, it's funny because these people uh, will call themselves Baptist writers. And basically that there is a line of Baptist churches all the way from John the Baptist up until today. But here's the thing that was funny about that chart that I read. You didn't start seeing, I mean, it was like John the Baptist. You got your first Baptist church with him. But then it's like not until like the 1800s that you see the name Baptist again. So where were all the Baptists for 1,800 years? Well, you trace them through all these different lines of churches. So here's the thing. There could be a point in Christianity where Baptists or where independent, fundamental, King James, soul-winning Baptists, all of them just stop serving God, all of them quit, no one does anything anymore. You know what? We might have a new group of people pop up that don't go by the name of Baptist, and then they'll do the work. You know, God isn't dependent on a movement. He's not dependent of a type of church. He's not dependent on anybody. God could torch this whole world tomorrow if he wanted to and decided that it was time to do that. But as of right now, he's not. So let's not get a puffed up attitude and think that we're bigger than we actually are. The rest that we have in Christian liberty is that Jesus paid for all of our sin. Jesus gave us a new covenant that no matter how hard we try, we are not able to mess up. So you know what? If you have sin in your life, if you're trying to get over sin, rest in the fact that that sin's not going to be laid to your charge and work through it. You know, you're able to serve in this church. You're able to serve the Lord. Why would you want to continue living in sin that he saved you out of? Why would you want to continue in just destroying your life, doing all these things contrary to the Bible? You have the ability through Christ to get over these things, rest in the fact that your sins are covered, and move on and walk in the newness of life. That's what we're there. So for my final point, what I want to get into then is what role should the law play in our lives? If we're saved, we have the gift of God, we have eternal life, we can't lose it. We can't mess it up. So then what is the point? Why should we look at the law in the first place? Hold your place in Galatians chapter number five. We're going to come back to it in a second. But go to First Timothy chapter number one. First Timothy chapter number one. And look down at verse number eight. It says, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons. And if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which is committed to my trust. So this is the thing to understand about the law. The law is not made for people who follow the rules and for people that have moral values and don't know anything wrong. The law is made for people that break the law to try to straighten them out and give them some kind of balance. As you grow, you shouldn't need as much just deep study on every single law. And listen to what I'm saying here. I don't have to wake up every morning and remind myself, don't murder anybody today. I, you just eventually get to the point in your life where it's not really a temptation or a struggle to commit murder that day. And if you're in here and you have that struggle, you should probably leave for a little bit until you get over that because you don't want to murder somebody here, you know. But so, uh, but you know, when you think about it though, I've run into situations like this. For example, going out soul winning in Chicago. And I'm talking to people, I give them the gospel, and then they just start telling me, you need to go a couple blocks over here and tell them to stop shooting. You know, and it's like, this is just in the neighborhood, they all know, that's where all the people live that murder everybody, you know, running around. And it's like, they're walking on the streets, there's nothing wrong with it, but you know what, it's a lawless place. And unfortunately, that controls basically the entire state that we live in, and so we live in a very restricted state. Why? Because of lawless, disobedient people. 
And it's not just in Chicago. It's all over this state. It's in Sterling. I mean, I don't really want to get into all the stories because I don't want to be made to sound out like a monster or something, but this stuff happens around here. And just these same people, this same culture, it's a lawless, disobedient culture, and that's why there's so many laws today. We get annoyed. People that follow the rules get annoyed at all kinds of extra things burying them down. But the reason that you suffer the consequences of all kinds of extra laws and extra things that you have to watch out for is because of lawless, disobedient people. Now go back to Galatians chapter number 5. In Galatians chapter number 5, we have this passage at the end where it basically talks about attributes of walking in the Spirit versus attributes of walking in the flesh. Now let's look at some of these. Verse number 16, Galatians chapter number 5, it says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. There's that phrase again, is not under the law, that people will take to teach that basically the law doesn't matter, throw it in the trash, we never have to look at it. And then we have this list of all these things, which is literally the law and explaining that we shouldn't be doing these things. Verse number 19, it says, Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So there's all your works of the flesh. Now in verse number 22, here's the fruit of the Spirit. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another, envying one another. If you're a spiritual person, which hopefully if you've been in this church long enough, you're learning to walk in the Spirit, you're learning to deny the lust of the flesh, you're learning to crucify the old man, you should be able to tell, am I walking in the Spirit or am I not walking in the Spirit based on the things that you're doing. Now here's the thing. Not every single thing listed here is always going to be walking in the Spirit 100% of the time. Now, think about this for a second. Uh, look at verse number 22, and one of the things that it mentions there is joy. It's possible to have joy in things that don't really have anything to do with the Bible or the Spirit of God. Let me give you an example. I'm a big sports fan. A lot of you guys know that. And a lot of times I'll be watching a game, and I'll get joy. You know, if... My favorite football team scores a touchdown, and I get really joyful and happy. Does that all of a sudden mean that I'm walking in the Spirit? No, it doesn't. So it's possible to feel some of the things like uh, love, for example. It's possible to feel some of these things and not be walking in the Spirit. So think about, you know, how can you tell the difference between these things, whether this is just, you know, something that you're feeling, just a general thing from the world, or... If it's something that you're feeling, you know, that actually comes from the Lord, check the law. See what the law says. You know, think about it like when you're in school, you're taking a test or something, and the teacher tells you that it's an open note test. You know, open note tests are the dumbest things in the world. You literally just have every single answer right there with you to fill it out. It's an easy 100%. Yet so many kids are like failing open note tests because the public school is a failure, Okay. You know, just a heads up in case you're still trying to deal with that and think that it's going to work. It's not going to work. It's a disaster. Okay, so but think about this in walking in the spirit and walking in the flesh like an open note test. You have the whole entire Old Testament, the whole entire law of God to check and say, okay, I'm feeling joy. I'm feeling love. I'm feeling peace. I'm doing all these other things. If you're not sure whether or not that means you're walking in the Spirit or not, the good news is you've got the whole entire Bible to check and make sure that you're not committing any of these sins. You know, there are all kinds of people today that take joy in wickedness. 
you know, that's not walking in the Spirit. That's committing wicked things. And the way that you can tell the difference between that is, number one, if you're committing, you know, adultery or fornication or something like that and finding joy in it, that's an easy way to know. Or just looking at the law. Is something that God is against bringing you joy? If so, you're not walking in the Spirit. That's the whole reason that these things are there. But too many people want to just completely throw all this away and act like the only purpose of it is to teach us about salvation. That's completely wrong. And go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 10. And this is where we'll close tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter number 10 destroys that entire thought immediately. Look in verse number 1, and we'll read a section of it here. It says, Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. Now here's an example of what we're not supposed to do but with many of them God was not well pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, these things were our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them, as it is written, these people sat up to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them have committed and fell in one day three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now, we just have a list of all these different sins that he's bringing up. Wait a minute, what is this? This is the law. And he's giving it to them, and he's telling them that all of these things that were written, all of the stories in the Old Testament, they're there for us to do what? Number one, he points out that they point us to Jesus Christ. And he's explaining just a couple of different instances in the Old Testament that represent Jesus Christ and that they were following Jesus Christ. But you know what he says after that? all the different sins that they committed and that they're there for us so that we don't make those same mistakes. You know, when you're reading through the book of Proverbs, you're reading about all kinds of different scenarios and instances described of basically a good way to do something and a failure at something. You know, you could read about the story of the strange woman and there is a way to deal with that and that's not to go near them, not to do anything. And then you have the guy that, you know, is a simple one, and that basically destroys his life over it. And we are supposed to look at those things and read them and understand them so that we don't make the same mistakes. Now look, if we're not supposed to look at the law and that the only thing that the law is to do is to teach us how to be saved, what is 1 Corinthians chapter number 10 doing in the Bible? You know, it's there to teach us not to commit these same mistakes. If people would put the same effort that they do into justifying sin and justifying continuing and whatever their flesh desires as just looking at the Bible and seeing what it says and applying it to their life. We would have some amazing Christians today. But so many people, it's like their whole purpose for reading the Bible is to just give them an excuse to commit whatever sin that they want to. Open their Bible up. Lord, give me an excuse today to drink alcohol. Lord, give me an excuse today to watch pornography. Lord, give me an excuse today to do whatever. The Bible is there to keep us from sin, not to encourage us to sin, not to see how close to the line of sin we can get. And 1 Corinthians 10 lays that out plainly for us, that you are supposed to be looking back, not neglecting it, not throwing it in the trash, looking back to the law, to the Old Testament, reading those stories, and using them as an example for you not to make the same mistake. Verse number 11. Now all these things happened unto them for in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed lest he fall. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye may be able to bear it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Whatever sin that you're struggling with that you think there's absolutely no way that I could ever get over this, there's no way that I can receive victory over it, there hath no temptation you 
There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. If there is a sin in your life that you're struggling with, and you think, I'll never get victory over this, I'll never be able to make it past it, read the Old Testament. I guarantee you can find somebody in a similar situation. And you can read their story and read the end thereof. A lot of us are too narrow-minded. And a lot of times when people are committing sins, actually not a lot of times, virtually every time that you commit sins, it's because you're only thinking about that moment, you're not thinking about the future. Because if you think about sins in terms of the big picture and how that alcohol will be 20 years from now, how fornication will be 20 years from now, how adultery will be 20 years from now, people are thinking about themselves in that moment. They're not thinking about anything in the future. And what you have the ability to do is look in the Old Testament, look at the law that everybody so desperately wants to run from and hide from and see the end of their story. You have the ability just through the historical books like 1 Samuel and on uh, all the way to the 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles and read all the different things that the kings of Israel did and read the good things that they did, read about the wicked things that they did, and you can probably find things that they did and circumstances that apply to your life and something that you might be tempted to do or that you might have done. And you can either watch somebody get victory over that or fall to that and make a decision on what you're going to do in your life. Are you going to continue in this sin all the way to the end and let it destroy you? Or are you going to fight through this sin, fight temptation, and overcome that temptation, which is what the Bible says in verse 13. It says, But God is faithful who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape that ye might be able to bear it. Do you know how you're going to escape temptation? By dwelling on the law of God by thinking on the things that the Bible says, that says that it's wrong, that says that it's right. But if you want to be like these people today that just throw the whole law in the trash, throw the entire Old Testament in the trash, and basically the only verse that you know is John 3.16 and Matthew 7.1, and just want to live your whole life dedicated to sin, dedicated to the flesh, it's an empty path. You know, I remember before I got saved, just as a teenager, it would keep me up at nights just thinking about, What is even the purpose of life? Why are any of us here? What's the whole reason for being here? And you know, there's peace in knowing that now. And I know what that is because I have the Bible, because I can read the Bible and see that. But you know how many people there are that their lives are so empty? You know, like I talk about, you know, I really like sports and stuff. How many people's lives are so empty that the only thing that they have in life is sports? That basically their whole entire life Their whole entire week, you know, we've got football season on right now. Their whole entire week is going to be decided on Sunday or whenever their team plays and whether their team wins or whether their team loses. And if their favorite team loses, goodbye to the rest of that next week being productive in any way, shape, or form because they're just going to be crushed the whole entire time about it. That's a miserable way to live. But you know what? When you have eternity in perspective, when you have God in perspective and the things of God in perspective, it doesn't matter. I can watch sports. When they win, I'm happy. When they lose, I'm mad, but I'm over it in just a little bit because it's really not that big of a deal. It's just something that's enjoyable, but enjoyment is not what life is supposed to be about. There's all these different people that the whole basis of their life is just glorying in their flesh, enjoying themselves, feeding their flesh, whatever it desires. And you have Christians that live the exact same way. That basically you show up to church, And you're here faithfully, you're here on Sunday, you're here on Wednesday, you put on a suit and tie, you look like you're legit, but every single other hour of your life outside of this building is spent just trying to find a way to glorify your flesh and enjoy your flesh and give yourself over to vanity and sin. It's useless. You're not going to find joy in it. You're never going to be able to drink enough alcohol to satisfy yourself. You're never going to be able to commit enough fornication to satisfy yourself. You're never going to make enough millions and millions of dollars to satisfy yourself. Every single thing that this world has to offer you is just an endless trail of grief. You have rest for your souls in Jesus Christ through the grace of God. And so here's what I want to wrap it all around with. People have a misunderstanding of grace that it's just a free pass to enjoy all the lusts of the flesh and the pride of life and all of the wicked devices of Satan. Grace needs to be put in its proper perspective in understanding how big of a deal it is and how amazing it is to have it because of the fact of how 
bad of a condition we were in before we received it. Jesus Christ gave us grace for a law that we fell immediately short of, that we had no grip of coming close to it. We should then honor that by trying not to, you know, continue living in the condition that we were in before. Who in here wants to go back to where you were right when you got saved? You know, who wants to go back and roll around in the mud that you used to live in before you got saved? You say, well, I grew up in church. Well, I'm not talking to you then. If you grew up in this world, you lived in the world, you know what it's like, who wants to go back to that? Nobody should want to go back to that because you know what it is? It's a bunch of emptiness. You can look at it and you can think that you might have had some fun times, but you know what? When you went down and you laid your bed down and you lay your head on your pillow at night, you had nothing of actual value in your life. It's all vanity. It's all empty. And none of us in here should have any desire to ever go back to that. Number one, it's not glorifying God. It's an honor to be a part of this. But number two, there's nothing that it has to offer. Anybody that spent any amount of time in the world can tell you that. It's empty. It's vain. Don't let the devil sow that lie in your ears that you can just go on living in the flesh, living and doing whatever you feel like at that moment in time. That's an empty, horrible lifestyle. So instead of trying to be like all these other people that want to just roll the law up, throw it in the trash, not pay attention to it, instead, you should love the law of God. You should dwell on the law of God. You should meditate on the law of God. You should study the law of God. Not for salvation, but so that you can show love back to God that he gave to you. You, you understand, you are the light of the world today. Don't hide your light under a bushel of sin and bushel of gratifying your flesh and doing whatever you want to in that moment. You have been given the light of the world. You have a responsibility to show that to other people. You're not going to be able to show that to other people if you're just glorying in your flesh all the time, never paying attention to it. You should be dedicated to following the Lord because of the great thing that was given to you, because of the grace that was shown to you. And I want to close with this verse in Titus. I'm sure a lot of us are familiar with it, but for the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Not the law that teaches us that. Grace teaches us that. Grace is not an excuse to commit sin. Grace is not an excuse to lay out of church, to not pay attention to any of the things in the Bible. Grace should be our motivation to live soberly, to live righteously, to live godly in this present world. That is our responsibility. That is what grace teaches us, not this junk that we can just throw out the whole Bible, live however we want, just because of the fact that we're saved. No, our lives should be dedicated to Christ. We should be thankful to him and serve him with all of our hearts. So with that, let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I just thank you so much for all that you've done for us, Lord. I thank you for the grace that you've brought to our lives and that you're willing to save us and care for us. I just appreciate all that you've done for us, Lord. Pray that we would be able to live a life that's glorifying to you, not glorifying ourselves in the empty road that that leads down, Lord. In Jesus' name.